You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can go and check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. In addition to the back episodes, you'll find a link there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece published at 972mag.com. This written by Shaul Magid. Who gets to tell the story of their oppression? The question arguably goes back to imperial times when kings ruled their subjects with impunity and sold the victims of their conquests into slavery. The answer, in those days, was fairly simple. The oppressed did not get to narrate their own story. History was written by the victors. The losers often disappeared and were forgotten, only occasionally to be discovered much later by historians if at all. Modernity offered a different, much more complex template in which the oppressed, and especially the colonized, began to have a voice. Landmark texts such as Martinican philosopher Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, Toni Morrison's 1987 novel Beloved, and Gayardi Spivak's 1988 essay Can the Subaltern Speak? gave voice to those silenced by colonialism and slavery. And in Palestine, Mahmoud Darwish, born in the Galilee, gave voice to the plight of Palestinians after the establishment of Israel in 1948. But even given these examples, the story of oppression, colonialism, and marginalized populations usually gets told by those in power. This is certainly the case in Israel-Palestine. And yet, not with the Jewish people. Jews have been writing about their various states of oppression and marginalization for centuries. When it comes to Jews being the recipients of state power and are not the oppressed, but rather the oppressors, however, they seem reluctant to allow those under their aegis to tell their own story. Indeed, much of what the English-speaking public knows about the Israeli-Palestinian, quote, conflict comes from the Israeli side, which includes Israelis critical of it. Can you imagine if, for example, only the Spaniards told the story of the Spanish expulsion in 1492? Yet this is approaching the long-standing dynamic in Israel-Palestine. The Palestinian voice is often muted, and when it emerges, as in the case of Darwish early in his career, it is often suppressed. This history is why Farha, a new powerful film from director Darren J. Salam, is so important. 
It gives us a view of the Arab-Israeli war in 1948 from, as Edward Said put it, the standpoint of its victims, in this case, a Palestinian teenager. Salam offers us an intense window loosely based on a true story onto the state of Palestinian oppression. The film tells a story of Farha, a 14-year-old Palestinian girl who spends part of the war locked in a storage cellar in her village, put there by her father, who promises to return, and never does, who is trying to protect her from Israeli forces. The politics of the film are never fleshed out. Rather, what we witness through Farha's eyes and through her terror is the personal toll of watching the destruction of one's world so that another can take its place. This film is naturally anti-Israel, told by the victims of Zionism. How can it be anything else? To argue that Zionism, like all nationalist movements, doesn't have its victims is to perpetuate the lie of, quote, a people without a land for a land without a people. It is common for some of Israel's defenders to say that the destructions of 1948 were, quote, necessary. But Farha shows that the death of the innocent is only necessary if one's heart stops beating. As is often the case in these times, the reception of Farha became its own story. Israel tried to prevent the film's release. Avigdor Lieberman, the far-right MK, accused Netflix, which added Farha to his catalog last month, of, quote, streaming a movie whose sole purpose is to create a false pretense and incite against Israeli soldiers. Jews around the world reportedly canceled their Netflix subscriptions. Next came myriad posts on social media claiming that the story was not in fact, quote, based on true events, that it was a fabrication meant only to incite. Of course, no evidence is provided for this accusation. And therein lies the rub. What exactly can't be true? That some Israeli soldiers in 1948 committed acts of atrocity in liquidating Palestinian villages? That Palestinian civilians were killed for no reason? One doesn't even need to adopt the Palestinian narrative to be convinced of those accounts. The Israeli historian Benny Morris's book, The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem, 1947-1949, to provides plenty of evidence to support what we see in Farha. Even in the book's 2012 second edition, quote, The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem Revisited, where Morris offers justifications for such war crimes, he never denies them. Nor does Ari Shavit in his reconstruction of the Lid massacre in his book, My Promised Land. Other such examples abound. Censored Voices, the film version of the 1967 Hebrew book, The Seventh Day, Soldiers Talk About the Six-Day War, edited by Abraham Shapira, for example, or Tantura, Alan Schwarz's recent film about the 1948 massacre in the eponymous Palestinian village. So what exactly is going on here? Why has Farha become a lightning rod for Jewish rage and angst, such that some tried to prevent its release? The reason given by some who criticized its release is that it will provoke anti-Semitism.
Does that mean we just bury the story, make believe a massacre never happened, and call its witnesses and survivors liars? In Tantura, a soldier in the unit that liquidated the village is asked why he never talked about the incident. He replies with a chuckle. What? I should tell people that I was a murderer? The real answer as to why some tried to silence the film is more complicated and takes us back to important points about colonialism as both a political project and an existential posture. For example, The Colonizer and the Colonized, Albert Mamie's classic text about French colonialism in Algeria, discusses how the colonizer deprives the colonized of a voice, above all to prevent them from telling their own story. Built into colonization is the principle of justification. The colonizer knows they must justify their actions, both to themselves and to the colonized. Colonization is not like pre-modern conquest that, in those days, demanded no justification. Colonization is both assertive and defensive at the same time. It must justify the act as being both legitimate and moral. In classic Christian colonialism, this is done by asserting the, quote, civilized nature of Christianity that is spread to the, quote, uncivilized colonized population. But in the case of Israel, it is different. Israel is not trying to convert the indigenous population. Quite the opposite. The separation of Jews and non-Jews in the land of Israel is preferred by most Zionists. Rather, in the case of Israel, the justification for colonial behavior is founded on the merging of homeland and nation-state. The land of Israel as the Jewish homeland is rooted in the Hebrew Bible. As Zionist leader and first Prime Minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, once said, quote, The Bible is our mandate. Yet Zionism takes this notion of homeland and argues that the nation-state is its inevitable and logical culmination. And thus, the justification of Zionism's behavior is rightful ownership of the land and the legitimacy of its conquest, even in all its messiness. Enabling the conquered or colonized to tell their own story threatens to undermine the supposition upon which the Zionist story is based, as the conquered do not share the same premises as the conqueror. Giving the colonized a voice detracts from colonialism's justification. Of course, the colonized should tell their own story. Yet when a film such as Farha gives us a stark visual narrative of the same atrocities that have been repeatedly confirmed by Israeli perpetrators and historians, there is a campaign to silence it. Why is it that only Israelis can tell the stories of their own abuses? The rage against Farha is, in one sense, quite predictable, even expected. This is because Farha depicts the Israeli assault as an act of colonialism. Aside from the more formal question as to whether Zionism is or is not colonialism, even if a society is not formally colonialist, as Mamid describes in his book and Spivak implies in her essay, they can act as colonizers. Farha illustrates that, and the attempt to silence Farha is itself an act of colonialism. Depriving the colonized of their right to tell their story is precisely what colonialism does to prevent the weakening of its own justification. 
This is not only true in Israel-Palestine. In the United States, white people, some of whom are the descendants of slave owners, largely remain the arbiters of who gets to narrate the history of Euro-American slavery. In this setup, victims have no perspective. They cannot be believed. That itself is colonial behavior and is part of what Americans are debating today amid the right's war on critical race theory. In the case of Israel-Palestine, Benny Morris and Ari Shavit were invited to synagogues in the United States to speak about their work, and in some way they are telling similar stories to Farha. And yet it is only Farha that is deemed anti-Semitic. Why? Because Farha dared to give witness to atrocities from the innocent eyes of a 14-year-old Palestinian girl trapped in a storage room as Israeli forces ravaged her village killed innocent people before her eyes, and destroyed her world. Denying that narrative right reveals a deeper kind of colonialism than the political. It is the silencing of the victim who is trying to tell her story, as if what she sees can never be publicized, as if it didn't exist at all. Put otherwise, her story only exists in as much as the conquerors choose to tell it. What was so striking about the film is that once the war began, Farha said almost nothing except calling repeatedly for her father. She was already silenced before attempts to silence her again by preventing the film's release. In a sense, those calling to silence Farha are making Salam's point for her. At a time when the new Israeli government is stepping up its long-running efforts to codify the erasure of the Palestinian narrative, Farha comes to break through the silence. The film was an opportunity to give the voice to the victimized, to allow them to tell their story. But that apparently was too much for those clinging to the conqueror's narrative to ask. And not only are the colonizers continuing to try to prevent the telling of the story by Palestinians, they are continuing to try to suppress the existence of Palestinians. This piece is published at counterpunch.org, written by Nikki Reed. The Israelis are pissed off, and for once, they're not just pissed off at the Arabs. They're pissed off at Bibi. They made this pretty clear during the final days of the first month of 2023 when they welcomed the new gangster coalition of Israel's longest-serving prime minister with massive protests against their announced plans to overhaul the nation's justice system and reduce its courts to the glorified playthings of any simple majority powerful enough to hijack the Knesset. Over 130,000 Israelis took to the streets of Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and Haifa among their ranks were some of the biggest names in Israeli politics, including Bibi's own former Deputy Prime Minister, Benny Gantz, and former Defense Minister, Moshe Yalon. The latter seemed to capture the spirit of the event with his defiant proclamation. A country where the Prime Minister appoints all the judges and is responsible for promoting and firing them has a name. It's called a dictatorship. When this Prime Minister is also a defendant, 
who the state of Israel is accusing of serious crimes, it has a name. It's called a dictatorship of criminals. Stirring stuff, and the motherfucker isn't wrong. Facing the barrel of being sent up the Dead Sea for charges of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. The man who used to be the most powerful man in the Holy Land since Saul wore jackboots essentially made a Faustian bargain with a bushel of fascist creeps and religious zealots to keep his ass from being mowed like grass. Why else would any sane human being hand over the Middle East's most ferocious and nuclear-armed military machine to celebrated kooks like Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, whose lives would read like one long hate crime if they didn't take the Sabbath? Still, something was very wrong with this picture. I couldn't quite place my finger on it at first. But as hundreds of thousands of well-dressed Europeans took to the streets of the Middle East's toniest neighborhoods, waving blue and white flags emblazoned with the Star of David, it finally hit me with a flash like a burning bush. Holy shit! These people have no idea that they're white supremacists bitching about their squandered privileges in the world's worst apartheid state. Moshe Yalon, a man who once called Palestinians a cancer that needs to be severed, doubled down on this sick irony as he rambled on to his adoring audience. Quote, The Jewish people paid a heavy price for the fact that in democratic elections in Germany, a government came to power that eliminated democracy. And it took less than a week for the Palestinians to pay yet another installment in a long receipt of heavy prices for Israel's so-called democracy when soldiers Yalon once led raided the besieged refugee camp of Janine. During a five-hour raid, the IDF slaughtered nine people, including a 61-year-old woman and two children, in a totally unprovoked attack on one of the poorest square miles on Earth. They added another body later that night when they murdered an unarmed protester just north of Jerusalem. This massacre was just the latest tragedy in a killing spree that has murdered more Palestinians in 2022 alone than in any year since the Second Intifada. 220 civilians, including 48 children, and many of these deaths were presided over by Israel's very own champion of liberal democracy, Benny Gantz. Just over a month into 2022, and that sick record is well on the way to being broken. I believe that should say 2023. As of the printing of this rant, 35 Arab bodies have been buried in the desert with Israeli bullets weighing down their caskets in 2023, including at least six children. And where the fuck are those 130,000 protesters now? Where is their righteous fury for the democratic rights of starving children gunned down in the ghettos of the Middle East only liberal democracy? They don't count. Because just like Nazi Germany, Israel's democracy exists solely for the pleasure of the master race. Israel's descent into fascism can only be a shock to the historically illiterate. The very notion of the Jewish state is steeped in racist folklore, which bears very little resemblance to reality. All races are social constructs, but the Jewish race is actually a relatively modern one. Most of today's Jews are actually the descendants of converts to Judaism, with little to no proven connection to modern-day Israel, 
and it was actually this status as a proudly stateless people with an allegiance to no one but God that made members of the tribe the perfect scapegoats for tyrants from the Tsars to the Fourth Reich. And they had good reason to be scared. Nearly every popular uprising in the last four centuries of European history was made possible by a steady stream of Judaic revolutionary mercenaries ready to die for any cause greater than that white supremacist contraption known as the Westphalia nation-state. This is why I laugh my fat tranny ass off every time some waspy Jesus freak calls me an anti-Semite. I wouldn't have two fists to swing with if brazen Jewish heretics like Rosa Luxemburg and Emma Goldman hadn't taught this stone butch shiksha how to throw a fucking punch. Sadly, this proud history of boldly rootless resistance has been all but erased by the invention of the Jewish race, which actually came out of the same 19th century cesspool of malignant nationalism that gave birth to the Holocaust. The notion of the Jews as a singular race in search of a homeland was the invention of a small clique of Jewish-German intellectuals influenced by folkish Germanic nationalism to create a secular school of Zionism defined largely by European colonialism. The Zionists didn't see themselves as German or Russian, but they did openly embrace the idea of a superior European diaspora in a twisted philosophy that could only be described as a form of kosher white supremacy. These racists weren't above collaborating with anti-Semites either. In fact, many Zionists seemed to embrace anti-Semitism as a totally justified reaction to Jews who dared to exist outside of Israel. Shaim Wiseman, president of the influential World Zionist Organization and the first president of Israel, told an audience in Berlin in 1912 that, quote, each country can absorb only a limited number of Jews if she doesn't want disorders in her stomach. Germany already has too many Jews. Under these circumstances, it's hardly surprising that Zionists found allies among their fellow white supremacists in England and Germany. Abraham Stern, who led a terrorist organization in the British Mandate of Palestine that would come to be called the Stern Gang, and which counted many of Israel's founding fathers, including two-time Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir, amongst its ranks, actually openly sought an alliance with Nazi Germany after British soured on the Zionist experiment. Abraham even went so far as to advocate a Jewish state based on, quote, nationalist and totalitarian principles linked to the German Reich. The Nazis considered the offer, even sending Adolf Eichmann to Palestine in 1937 to promote Zionist emigration, but ultimately decided that it would be cheaper to just annihilate the Jews, a decision the Zionists would arrive at themselves to solve their own question of how to deal with their own unwanted Semites. It was only after the horrors of the Holocaust that the Zionists managed to get traumatized Jews to sign on to their violent vision of Ashkenazi's supremacy, and the Zionists expertly harnessed the well-earned rage of these people to carry out their own final solution against the Palestinian people with a campaign that would become known as the Nakba. Even before the Holocaust, Zionist terrorist organizations like the Stern Gang, Haganah, and Irgun 
covertly infiltrated our villages, gathering detailed intelligence on everything from demographics to water resources, which they would use to carefully choreograph massacres that easily rivaled the Einsatzgruppen in their sheer brutality. Crowded homes were bombarded with hand grenades, and any grown man caught escaping was forced to dig his own grave before being executed. Women and children were routinely raped before being sent to the hills with nothing but the clothes on their backs. 750,000 Palestinians were driven from their homes at gunpoint, and 500 villages were razed to the ground. The racist death squads who carried out these massacres would become the first officers of the new Israeli Defense Forces. Irgun, who took part in the Nakba's most heinous massacres in Deir Yasin, which resulted in the slaughter of 107 men, women, and children, would become Benny Gantz and Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party. Any lingering doubts about Israel's commitment to bringing white supremacy to the Middle East should have been stomped out with the creation of gigantic Nazi-style ghettos in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. But this cruelty towards the native peoples of the Near East extended to Jews as well. While Mossad went so far as to launch terrorist attacks against Oriental Jews in Iraq in order to pack the Holy Land with a stampede of refugees, Israel's Ashkenazi elites welcomed their darker cousins with tent cities, forced secularization, DDT, and deadly radiation treatments. Israel's first Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, pounded this point home, stating emphatically, quote, We are in duty bound to fight against the spirit of the Levant, which corrupts individuals and societies, and preserve the authentic Jewish values as they crystallized in the diaspora. You see, it wasn't enough for the Zionists to make Palestine Jewish. Their mission was to make Jews white. And it was none other than Theodore Herzl, the father of modern Zionism, described as, quote, the spiritual father of the Jewish state, in Israel's Declaration of Independence, who called for his dream nation to, quote, form a part of wall of defense for Europe in Asia, an outpost of civilization against barbarism and referred to him and his fellow Zionists as, quote, representatives of Western civilization, sent to bring cleanness and order to the Orient. The dirtiest secret about Zionism and its increasingly genocidal apartheid state in Israel is that these forces are, in fact, the greatest source of anti-Semitism on the planet. A snake's nest of European elitists seeking to scrub the desert clean of its diverse Semitic culture while assimilating Jewish people into the white race by any means necessary. And for daring to even speak of this hideous truth out loud, I am to be condemned as a racist. After all, how can the Middle East's only liberal democracy possibly be an agent of white supremacy? But what greater tool for white supremacy has ever existed? What exterminated the stateless Native Americans and enslaved the anarchists of Africa? The entire premise of liberal democracy is built on notions of Western superiority that can only be reinforced by the state. It is not a coincidence that Hitler, Mussolini, and Netanyahu all rose to power in liberal democracies. Fascism is merely the inevitable result of the state's failure to homogenize the diversity of mankind beneath the banner of a single order. Rosa and Emma understood this all too well. 
but perhaps they too are anti-Semites. A country that packages conformity to white Anglo-Saxon values as progress has a name. It's called a liberal democracy. And a liberal democracy that fails to fool its subjects into embracing this slavery as progress has no place left to go but to embrace its true nature as a dictatorship of criminals. You can't reform fascism and white supremacy. Fighting these hideous creatures with the liberal democracy that birthed them is like fighting the AIDS virus with good old-fashioned HIV. The host must be destroyed, and until the people of the Levant unite against this Zionist host, they will never be safe from a virus that thrives on pitting every tribe of poor people in the desert against each other. The only solution to Palestine's white supremacist question is a no-state solution. So go ahead and call me a fucking racist. I have too many states to smash to pick favorites based on foreskin and too little time to waste on the fragile feelings of gaslighting fascists. And following that powerful piece, we have a litany of receipts. This piece is published at MiddleEastMonitor.com. Israel cabinet approved strict military action against Palestinians in Jerusalem. The Israeli security cabinet yesterday approved several measures against Palestinians, including strict military action in occupied East Jerusalem. Yes, to be very, very clear, that is East Jerusalem, which is part of Palestine, not part of Israel, but is currently under occupation by Israel. Following its meeting, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that a series of measures aimed at suppressing Palestinian resistance were approved. How dare you resist us occupying your lands? They include the deployment of extra police and military troops in the occupied holy city, along with, quote, increased police operational activity against insiders and supporters of terrorism. Quote, the security forces will act in a targeted manner against the perpetrators of terrorism, Netanyahu said in reference to Palestinian resistance fighters. The cabinet also legalized nine isolated settler outposts in the occupied West Bank. Netanyahu claimed that the decision came in response to a string of Palestinian, quote, terror attacks in East Jerusalem. To legalize the settler outposts, the government will have to prove that they were established on what Israel considers to be, quote, state land. Yeah, Israel seems to consider people's other people's land to be, quote, Israel state land. According to the Times of Israel, this will likely be difficult given that many of them, including almost all of Sadat Boaz and Givat Harel, were built on private Palestinian land. Next up, a piece published at PressTV.ir. The Palestinian resistance movement Hamas has strongly condemned a new Israeli law that facilitates the expulsion of Palestinian prisoners and their families, with the Palestinian Foreign Ministry calling it, quote, the ugliest form of racism. The resistance movement said in a statement on Wednesday that Israel's law violates the rights of Palestinians in their ancestral land and is aimed at paving the way for their forceful expulsion. The Israeli parliament passed a law earlier in the day that allows the Tel Aviv regime to revoke the residency status or citizenship of those who have been engaged in activism 
against the occupation of Palestinian lands and deport them either to the occupied West Bank or the besieged Gaza Strip. The bill was passed in the Knesset by 94 votes to 10 on Wednesday. It was fast-tracked through Parliament following an escalation of tensions across the West Bank towns and cities in recent months. The law stipulates that those sentenced to prison and who have received a form of funding from the Palestinian Authority can have their citizenship or residency revoked and be deported. The Palestinian Foreign Ministry slammed the law as the ugliest form of racism. Kadura Fares, the chairman of the Palestinian Prisoners Association, said, quote, This is an unjust and racist law that aims to empty the land of its native residents and eject people from their homes. Fair said the law was a very dangerous decision that aims to transfer Palestinians from their cities and villages under the pretext of getting social assistance from the PA. The new law will apply to Palestinian citizens of Israel and permanent residents of occupied East Al-Quds. The latter widely refuse Israeli citizenship and are issued residency IDs by Israel's Interior Ministry. The Palestinian Authority gives stipends to families of Palestinian prisoners or detainees. Adala, an organization that advocates Palestinians' rights in Israel, said the law, quote, not only creates an additional avenue for the revocation of citizenship of residency of Palestinians under the Israeli regime, but also facilitates their expulsion. The law explicitly and exclusively targets Palestinians as part of Israel's entrenchment of two separate legal systems based on Jewish supremacy, the group said in a statement. Ahmad Tibi, an Arab opposition lawmaker in the occupied territories, condemned the law as discriminatory. When an Arab commits a crime, they are a conditional citizen, whereas when a Jew commits even a more serious crime, Revoking their citizenship is unheard of, he said. Under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's far-right cabinet, discussions about withdrawing residencies and stripping away citizenship from Palestinians living in Al-Quds have been floated specifically for prisoners who have carried out retaliatory operations. Israel has reportedly revoked the residency status of at least 14,701 Palestinians in East Al-Quds from 1967 to 2020. The number will jump to 86,000 if the dependent children of those who had their residencies revoked are counted. Next up, a piece published at MiddleEastMonitor.com. Israel's finance minister has announced that the far-right government of Benjamin Netanyahu will lift all restrictions on the construction of settlements in the occupied West Bank and Palestinian territories, in a move which blatantly defies international law and Washington's displeasure. Something that's not very common is Washington actually having some displeasure against uh, actions and activities of the Israeli government. Right-wing extremist Benzalel Smotrich made the announcement at a press conference at the illegal West Bank outpost of Givat Harel. Quote, the real answer to terror is to continue to build, to continue to set roots in the land of Israel, he said. Under the move, the government will approve the construction of almost 10,000 housing units in the West Bank, including 2,000 that have already been built, 
and a further 4,300 units that would be given the green light in May. And a note on those 2,000 that were already built, which if they uh, weren't approved before they were built, then they were built illegally. Israel is frequently forcing Palestinians to destroy their homes or destroying the homes of Palestinians who which were built quote unquote illegally without proper prior authorization authorization which they don't give so for them to uh after the fact approve thousands of houses built by israelis on palestinian land is just proof of their program to take over that land quote that is what we as a government, as a state, as a nation must do, insisted Smotrich. The settlement enterprise thrives thanks to the pioneers who have sustained it for many years with great love, with great determination, with great consistency and efficiency. He added that the coalition government, the most extreme in Israel's history of extreme governments, has confirmed the approval of 10 settlement outposts, which were built illegally, even under Israeli law. My coalition partners understand that this is a logical move. Insisting that these moves are just the beginning of the further expansion of the Zionist project and occupation, the minister said he will try to push for more settlement authorization. Quote, we must lift all the restrictions on construction in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. This area must function like any other in the state of Israel. The occupied West Bank, however, is not recognized as an area of the state of Israel. It is occupied territory, and all settlements are illegal under international law, which Israel treats with contempt. Tel Aviv's move was condemned by the U.S. yesterday with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, stating somewhat meekly, which is the only, only kind of criticism ever uh mentioned or raised towards Israel is certainly going to be meek. Quote, We strongly oppose such unilateral measures which exacerbate tensions and undermine the prospects for a negotiated two-state solution. State Department spokesperson Ned Price dismissed it as Israel making, quote, its own sovereign decisions, despite our very strong opinion against the move. Both U.S. officials failed to outline any actions that Washington could take against its ally. No, not could take. There are many, many actions Washington could take. You mean they would not outline any actions that Washington would take against its ally because it generally will not take any. Smotrich similarly brushed away the U.S. opposition to the plans. The White House is well aware of Tel Aviv's policy, he said. We have joint interests, but we communicate our policy and our own interests to the Americans, and the administration knows our commitment to settlements. No kidding. Not a secret. Washington knows. Washington doesn't give a shit. Since Netanyahu was voted in and formed his far-right coalition late last year, Israel has grown bolder in its aim to expand illegal settlements in the occupied Palestinian territories in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. It no longer seems to care about maintaining its, quote, democratic image in the international community. The new government's position of Jewish supremacy became clear when Netanyahu stated in December that, quote, 
the Jewish people have an exclusive and unquestionable right to all areas of the land of Israel. The government will promote and develop settlement in all parts of the land of Israel, in the Galilee, the Negev, the Golan, Judea, and Samaria. Meanwhile, it remains unlikely that construction will be approved or implemented for Palestinian housing in Area C of the West Bank, which the previous government had approved. And here's a little bit more information on the legalization of the previously built illegal uh, colonies. This is by Brett Wilkins, published at CommonDreams.org. Israel's far-right security cabinet on Sunday approved the immediate, quote, legalization of nine Jewish-only settler outposts in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem over what critics called the empty objection of benefactor, the United States, and in violation of international law, under which all Israeli settler colonies are illegal. National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir and Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich both claimed responsibility for the action, in which they sought government recognition of 77 illegal settler outposts. The ministers and other Israeli officials said the move was in response to recent deadly attacks against Jews by Palestinian resistance fighters, including a vehicular assault that killed three people, two of them young children, near East Jerusalem's Ramat neighborhood on Friday. Quote, It is not enough and we want more, but it is an important start. Ben Gavir, who leads the ultranationalist Otzma Yehudit, or Jewish Power Party, tweeted Sunday. The training of the settlements will join the extensive police activity in East Jerusalem and other series of measures to deter terrorism, he added, a reference to the cabinet's move to increase the number of security forces in Jerusalem and ramp up operations in Palestinian neighborhoods of occupied East Jerusalem. The nine settler outposts, Avigayil, Beit Hogla, Givat Harel, Givat Haroa, Givat Arnon, Mitzbe Yehuda, Malkai Hashalom, Asa El, Boa, no, that's Sedei Boaz, and Shaharit were considered illegal even under Israeli law. Under international law, all settlements in which anti Arab apartheid is strictly enforced are illegal. Most were built on land seized from Palestinians through terrorism and ethnic cleansing during the Nakba or catastrophe, when more than 700,000 Arabs were expelled during the establishment and consolidation of modern Israel in 1947 to 1949, and during the conquest of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, and the Syrian Golan Heights in 1967. Israel's civil administration is set to meet in the coming days to greenlight the construction of thousands of homes in existing apartheid colonies and to build more infrastructure to connect the communities with each other and Israel. Ben Gavir also told police to prepare for a new Operation Defensive Shield, a reference to the 2002 offensive that killed more than 400 Palestinians during the Second Intifada, or General Uprising. Quote, to root out terror nests and reach the terrorists at their homes, according to the Times of Israel. 
A senior Israeli official quoted anonymously by the Times of Israel slapped down Ben Gvir's call, explaining that, quote, decisions of such scale are not made in statements by one minister or another on a sidewalk at the scene of an attack. The group Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East tweeted a reminder that, quote, every settlement is illegal under international law. While Richard Burden, the vice chair of the UK group Labour Friends of Palestine, said, Whatever the Netanyahu government decides to authorize under international law, the entire West Bank remains occupied territory. All the settlements built there are illegal, and Israel is in breach of its obligations under the Geneva Convention. Both Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention and the International Criminal Court Rome Statute prohibit settlement activity. According to Article 8.2 of the Rome Statute, quote, the transfer, directly or indirectly, by an occupying power of parts of its own civilian population into the territory it occupies, or the deportation or transfer of all or parts of the population of the occupied territory within or outside this territory, are unlawful. In 2021, United Nations Palestine expert Michael Link said Israel's settlements should be classified as war crimes under the Rome Statute. From 1978 until 2019, the United States Department also considered Israeli settlements unlawful. The decision to grant legal status to the nine settlements came despite the stated objections of the United States, which provides Israel with $3.8 billion in annual military aid, as well as diplomatic cover for what former U.S. President Jimmy Carter called, quote, worse apartheid than we saw in South Africa invasions, ethnic cleansing, and other repression. Our position on these matters has been clear and consistent, an unnamed Biden administration told Axios Middle East correspondent Barack Ravid. We strongly oppose expansion of settlements and we're deeply concerned by reports about a process to legalize outposts that are illegal under Israeli law. According to the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem, more than 620,000 Jews currently reside in around 140 settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. While Israel grants every Jew in the world the right to settle in Israel, it has, against UN resolutions and international law, refused to allow the approximately 5 million Palestinian refugees alive today to return to their homeland. Here's a piece published at usnews.com. Between Jericho and the Dead Sea, Israeli settlers rejoice after the government granted their outpost retroactive approval. An hour's drive north, others are beaten by officers evicting an unsanctioned settler vineyard. Drawing Western concern and Palestinian anger, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government authorized nine settler outposts in the occupied West Bank this week in response to two Palestinian street attacks in which nine Israelis were killed. On hearing the news from the government on Sunday night, the young men of Bayat Holga, a cluster of mobile homes housing around 35 families neatly set up near a desert road, broke into a dance. Quote, We had tears in our eyes. It was very joyful, said Yagel Shmuel. 31-year-old father of four who came to leave in, live in Bayat Holga seven years ago with four other families. 
The formal recognition will make it easier to pave roads and build schools for the settlement's 100 children, said Shmuel. We hope the government's decision will bring us a lot of families and we can build here a big settlement. Since the 1967 war, Israel has established around 140 settlements on land Palestinian sea as the core of a future state. Besides the authorized settlements, groups of settlers have built scores of outposts without government permission. Some, like the vineyard uprooted on Wednesday, have been raised by Israeli security forces. Others were authorized retroactively. The nine granted approval on Sunday are the first for Netanyahu's new nationalist religious government. Palestinian officials have denounced the move as a provocation and called on world powers to back up verbal condemnation with action against Israel. Most world powers deem settlements built on the territory Israel seized in 1967 war as illegal under international law and their expansion as an obstacle to peace, since they eat away at land the Palestinians claim for a future state. Israel disputes the illegality of the settlements and cites biblical and historical ties to the West Bank, which it calls by its biblical name, Judea and Samaria. Ideological settlers believe they are pioneers redeeming land promised by God to the Jewish people. Legalizing outposts was one of the main promises Netanyahu's Likud party made to their leaders in the coalition deals following the November 1 election. This is the most important thing we have, said Shmuel. More than 450,000 people, or less than 5% of Israel's population, are Jewish settlers in the West Bank, home to about 3 million Palestinians who exercise limited self-rule there. While the leaders of the pro-settler party's religious Zionism and Jewish power celebrated the authorization of the outposts, the vineyards uprooting on Wednesday exposed cracks in the government. Religious Zionism leader, Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich, denounced the uprooting and blamed Defense Minister Yoav Gallant for ignoring their coalition deal, granting him increased powers in the West Bank over settlement expansion. Footage showing some border policemen beating settlers who tried to stop the eviction further aggravated Smotrich and his ally, National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir. Quote, This is not what we had hoped for. We joined this government based on a promise by Prime Minister Netanyahu that this would be a full-fledged right-wing government, Ben-Gavir said in a statement. Here's a piece published at EgyptIndependent.com. Egypt's foreign ministry on Monday harshly criticized a move by the Israeli government to, quote, legitimize settlement outposts in occupied Palestinian territories and to build new settlements, stating that the decision is a flagrant violation of the Security Council, UN resolutions, and international law. The foreign ministry considers the decision an unacceptable, provocative act which coincides with the convening of the Arab League's Cairo summit supporting Jerusalem. Egypt warned of the consequences of this decision, which it fears will inflame the severely congested situation in the occupied territories, threatening to widen the scope and pace of violence, bringing dire repercussions on the security and stability of the entire region. The statement called for an immediate end to all unilateral measures on the part of Israel, including house demolitions, arrests, and raids targeting the Palestinian people and their property. 
Egypt stressed that the only way to calm the situation is to stop practices that violate international laws and to return to negotiations aiming to reach a solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict based on international legitimacy. And as we heard from those earlier pieces about the uh, timid response of the United States to Israel's gross and harmful actions in Palestine, the uh, area where the U.S. is not so timid is when it comes to defending Israel in all kinds of different ways, uh, in all kinds of different arenas. This piece is written by Julia Conley and is published at CommonDreams.org. Human rights advocates are warning that the Biden administration's decision to withdraw its nomination of law professor James Cavallaro to serve on a human rights commission could be the latest incident that chills free speech regarding violent Israel policies in Palestine. Scavallaro said he was shut out of the position due to his condemnation of Israel's apartheid regime. Cavallaro was nominated last Friday to sit on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, a watchdog within the Organization for American States, which he previously served on from 2014 to 2017. The nomination was met with applause from the human rights advocacy community, but on Tuesday, Cavallaro said on social media that he'd been informed by the U.S. State Department that the nomination had been withdrawn, quote, due to my statements denouncing apartheid in Israel-Palestine. Cavallaro, the founder and executive director of the University Network for Human Rights, UNHR, at Wesleyan University, said he responded to the State Department's news by noting that mainstream human rights groups, including Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the Israeli organization B'Tselem, have all stated that Israel's illegal settlements, restriction of Palestinians' movement, and other policies amount to apartheid. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Palestine also said last year that the Israeli occupation of Palestine territories is apartheid. The Al Jaminer, a newspaper that UNHR called a fringe Trump-affiliated media outlet in a statement Wednesday, reported on Cavallaro's comments about Israel as an apartheid state on Monday in an article that also focused on a tweet written by Cavallaro in December saying U.S. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries of New York has been, quote, bought, purchased, controlled by the anti-Palestinian rights lobby. That tweet was written in response to a Guardian article detailing Jeffries' close ties to the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC, and other pro-Israel lobbying groups, which donated $460,000 to the Democratic leader last year. Cavallaro also tweeted that right-wing Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia was, quote, bought and paid for. We were not aware of the statements and writings, U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price said in a statement Tuesday. Cavallaro acknowledged on Wednesday that he removed some of his tweets, quote, proactively and in good faith to address the State Department's concerns about his public statements on his personal views on U.S. policy. Former Director of Human Rights Watch Kenneth Roth said the decision to withdraw Cavallaro's nomination 
suggests that only Israeli apologists are acceptable for human rights positions. He noted that the UNHR director's views on Israel are, quote, a completely mainstream position for any human rights defender. There is consensus today across the human rights movement on Israel's system of apartheid and many other prominent voices from the former UN Secretary General and Director General of Israel's Foreign Ministry to the South African government and French Foreign Minister have referenced apartheid in relation to Israel's systematic subjugation of Palestinians, said the UNHR. When it comes to human rights in Israel-Palestine, the U.S. State Department is the outlier. Jamil Dakwar, director of the ACLU's Human Rights Program, warned that the State Department's decision, quote, sends a dangerous message and chills speech critical of Israel. David Kay, a former UN Special Rapporteur on Free Expression, called the withdrawal a huge and totally unjustified mistake. While Cavallaro's potential participation on the commission would have absolutely no impact on U.S. policy on Israel, the withdrawal of his nomination will have real consequences for human rights in the Americas, said UNHR. Cavallaro has been a courageous and committed voice for justice for victims of human rights abuse across the region. As an experienced commissioner in his second term, he would have advanced the cause of human rights in the hemisphere significantly. Here's a piece published at mondoweiss.net. New Jersey-Palestine solidarity organizations have released a petition calling on New Jersey legislators and, quote, all New Jersey citizens to reject a new joint resolution, AJR 211-SJR 113, pending in both houses of the New Jersey State Legislature. The resolution resolves that New Jersey adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IHRA's, quote, working definition of anti-Semitism, which falsely conflates anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Even at face value, the resolution is unjustifiable. Resurgent white nationalist anti-Semitism notwithstanding, Jews are neither exceptional victims of racism in this country, nor are we subject as Jews to any of the systemic state violence and oppression inflicted on BIPOC communities. Existing anti-discrimination and hate crime laws already apply to us. How can we defend any resolution or law that bestows special attention and protections on us alone? But as the petition notes, this resolution is not truly about defining anti-Semitism or protecting Jewish people to begin with. It is about employing the authority of the state through the IHRA definition to slander and silence the growing Palestinian solidarity movement. The apartheid Israel regime was founded in 1948 through an open-ended campaign of ethnic cleansing and dispossession, the Nakba, to drive out the indigenous Palestinian majority. For 75 years and counting, the regime has denied Palestinian Nakba refugees their inalienable right to return to their homes and homeland. More than 65 discriminatory laws codify Jewish supremacy throughout historic Palestine, including the 2018 nation-state law, in regard to which Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu infamously declared, quote, Israel is not a state of all its citizens. Israel is the nation-state of the Jewish people, and only it. 
Unable to refute or answer for these facts, Israel's enablers have seized on the IHRA definition. In the words of advocacy group and petition endorser Palestine Legal, quote, as a tool to censor political debate by tarring those who support Palestinian rights as anti-Jewish. The IHRA crusade emanates from the highest levels of the U.S. government, which relies on and heavily arms Israel as an outpost for U.S. imperial interests in the region. The State Department endorses IHRA on its website. In 2019, Donald Trump, whose casual anti-Semitism stopped neither Jewish Zionists voting for him in significant numbers, nor Israelis from extolling him as, quote, the best friend Israel has ever had in the White House, issued an executive order on combating anti-Semitism with the working definition at its center. Although sustained pushback from civil rights and Palestine solidarity organizations recently helped defeat Zionist efforts to pressure the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights to officially adopt the IHRA definition, on February 2, New Jersey representative and vocal IHRA supporter Josh Gothheimer, along with 31 bipartisan co-sponsors, introduced a resolution in Congress specifically condemning, quote, anti-Semitism masquerading as anti-Israel sentiment. The drive to embed IHRA works in tandem with the lawfare assault on the Palestinian-led movement for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel. This includes the passage of anti-BDS legislation in 34 states. It also echoes right-wing calls to muzzle critical race theory. The anti-BDS and anti-CRT offensives, write journalist Abe Asher, share an array of financial backers, legislative tactics, and political motives to quash legitimate criticism of the racist and colonial practices of increasingly embattled states. The Zionist establishment's witch hunt against anti-Zionists, many of them Jewish, ignores the real source of anti-Semitism, white nationalism. It also distracts from the growing alliance between Zionists and white nationalists, over shared Islamophobic, ethno-supremacist, and social Darwinist fixations. That bond is no aberration. The Zionist movement has always been rooted in the ideologies of racial separation and 19th century blood and soil nationalism that are at the core of white supremacist anti-Semitism. Today, the Israeli regime has forged close ties with pro-Israel anti-Semites from Trump to Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro, to Hungarian Prime Minister and Putin ally Viktor Orban, while neo-Nazi and self-declared white Zionist Richard B. Spencer calls Israel, quote, the most important ethno-state he looks to for guidance. On this, the authors of AJR 211, SJR 113, and the IHRA working definition are silent. If Jewish people in the United States are not exceptional victims of racism, we are exceptionally well-positioned to expose and confront the campaign to conflate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. That is one of the most important contributions we can make to the struggle for a free Palestine and to the fight against anti-Semitism. In that spirit, Jews for Palestine right of return calls on all supporters of justice in Jewish people in particular to sign the petition and share it widely. And here's a piece by Taylor Fox, Rachel Crumholz, and Sarah Fryman. This published at truthout.org.
As Jewish students and anti-Zionist organizers, we know that it is in no way anti-Semitic to support the fight for Palestinian liberation. False accusations of such should not be used to silence Palestinian solidarity activists. That's why we're glad to see the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights ditch a misleading and discredited definition of anti-Semitism in its recent fact sheet on protecting students from discrimination. While the Office for Civil Rights decision marked an important victory, the Biden administration is currently leaving the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, or IHRA, definition of anti-Semitism on the table for potential adoption in December 2023. The struggle is not yet over. The Office for Civil Rights decision came after anti-Palestinian lobby groups pressed for the Department of Education to formalize Donald Trump's 2019 executive order which asks government agencies to consider the discredited and disputed definition of anti-Semitism promoted by the IHRA when assessing discrimination charges at public schools and universities. Thankfully, the Office for Civil Rights declined to adopt the IHRA definition in its most recent fact sheet, which outlines protections for Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, and Buddhist students without suppressing the Palestinian liberation movement. Adopting the IHRA definition would have been harmful because rather than addressing the roots of anti-Semitism in Christian hegemony and white supremacy, the definition acts as though criticism of Israel is the source of anti-Semitism. In fact, six out of the ten examples of anti-Semitism offered within the definition involve speech that is critical of Israel. For instance, it suggests that a primary example of anti-Semitism involves, quote, claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. The IHRA definition's harm is twofold. First, it weaponizes the idea of anti-Semitism as a tool for criminalizing the speech and advocacy of Palestinians and those working in solidarity with them. And second, it obscures what actual anti-Semitism is actually about. And in doing so, it wrongly and dangerously pits Palestinian liberation against Jewish safety. Defenders of the Israeli government have already weaponized the IHRA definition to legally target or threaten classroom discussions, guest lecturers, film screenings, and student organizing in support of Palestinian freedom. These attacks threaten the core mission of universities to promote critical inquiry and freedom of expression in order for us to learn. The IHRA definition has been used to attempt to shut down educational events and some have even suggested attaching criminal penalties to it, all for trying to confront Israel's historical and ongoing practices of settler colonialism, ethnic cleansing, and land dispossession. The IHRA definition also obscures the identities of anti-Zionist Jews such as ourselves who reject the idea of a Jewish nation-state. With a long history of Jewish opposition to Zionism, We see anti-Zionism as an essential part of our Jewish values and central to our Jewish identities. As such, we refuse to allow the willful misrepresentation of our Judaism in order to target our Palestinian peers. The IHRA definition is a prime example of how this misrepresentation has been disseminated into institutions. This is a reality that we have witnessed firsthand on our campuses. 
In three years of organizing with the George Washington University's chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace, we have witnessed and been directly implicated in our university's intentional conflation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. This past fall, George Washington University professor Lara Sheehy was baselessly accused of anti-Semitism by Stand With Us, a notoriously anti-Palestinian and right-wing activist group for voicing political opinions that critiqued Zionism when discussing Israel with a class of doctoral students. Stand With Us filed the legal complaint directly with the Department of Education. This is a foremost example of why the Office for Civil Rights' decision to reject the IHRA definition is vital. Had it been institutionalized, the claims against Sheehy would have legal standing. Despite this, the school's administration has legitimized the targeting of Sheehy by conducting an independent investigation, deviating from their standard of internal processes and thus directly discriminating against Sheehy. This is just one example of George Washington University's incessant pattern of anti-Palestinian discrimination, much of which operates under the guise of fighting anti-Semitism and project protecting Jewish students. What is dishearteningly ironic about George Washington University's involvement in this case is that it does not protect anyone. Instead, the university's permittance of a non-affiliated right-wing organization to target one of their own professors further perpetuates anti-Arab discrimination, suppresses academic freedom, and makes their students and faculty more vulnerable to external threats. One of the many arguments put forward to support the claim by the government of Israel and the Zionists that um, Jews are the only folks who have a right to live in this land is that historically, in ancient times, the Jews were the rightful residents of this land, and they were um, forced out and dispersed, and others came to live there. So it is natural and proper for Jews to be able to come back and reclaim their homeland. And this next piece has a bit to say regarding that, how that is kind of policed and controlled in the modern world to reinforce this belief or this claim that, you know, these are the ancient people coming home to their old home. This piece is published at abc.net.au. An ivory spoon dating back 2,700 years that was recently repatriated to the Palestinian Authority from the United States has sparked a dispute with Israel's new far-right government over cultural heritage in the occupied West Bank. The clash brings into focus the political sensitivities surrounding archaeology in the Middle East, where Israelis and Palestinians each use ancient artifacts to support their claims over the land. Israel's ultra-nationalist heritage minister has ordered officials to examine the legality of the U.S. government's historic repatriation of the artifact to the Palestinians earlier this month. The artifact, a cosmetic spoon made of ivory and believed to have been plundered from a site in the West Bank, 
was seized in late 2021 by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office as part of a deal with the New York billionaire hedge fund manager Michael Steinhardt. It was one of 180 artifacts illegally looted and purchased by Mr. Steinhardt that he surrendered as part of an agreement to avoid prosecution. American officials handed the artifact over to Palestinian Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities on January 5, and what the U.S. State Department's Office of Palestinian Affairs said was, quote, the first event of such repatriation by the United States to the Palestinians. Dozens of Mr. Steinhardt's surrendered artifacts have already been repatriated to Italy, Bulgaria, Greece, Turkey, Jordan, Libya, and Israel. This spoon was the first and only item ever to be repatriated to the Palestinians. The repatriation coincided with the first weeks of Israel's new government, which is composed of ultra-nationalists who see the West Bank as the biblical heartland of the Jewish people and inextricably linked to the state of Israel. Heritage Minister Emehai Eliyahu's office said last week that the legality of the repatriation quote is being examined by the archaeology staff officer with the legal counsel, which will examine all aspects of the matter, including the Oslo Accords that the U.S. has signed. The case underscores how archaeology and cultural heritage are intertwined with the competing claims of the Israelis and Palestinians in the decades-long conflict. Quote, any artifact that we know that it comes out illegally from Palestine, we have the right to have it back, said Jihad Yassin, Director General of Excavations and Museums in the Palestinian Tourism and Antiquities Ministry. The ministry is part of the Palestinian Authority, the government established as part of the Oslo Accords in the 1990s, that exercises limited autonomy in parts of the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Those agreements between Israel and the Palestinians were supposed to include coordination on a raft of issues, including archaeology and cultural heritage. But the agreements have largely unraveled. Mr. Yassin said that the Archaeology Committee has not met in around two decades and that there is virtually zero coordination between Israel and the Palestinians concerning antiquities theft prevention in the West Bank. The Director General said that around 60% of the West Bank's archaeological sites are in territory under complete Israeli military control, and that his ministry's theft prevention workers, quote, managed to control in a high percentage the looting in areas under Palestinian authority control. Nonetheless, many of the illicit artifacts that have made their way to Israel's legal antiquities market were looted from the West Bank, he said. According to court documents, Mr. Steinhardt bought the ivory cosmetic spoon in 2003 from Israeli antiquities dealer Gil Shaya for $6,000. The artifact had no provenance or paperwork dealing where it came from and how it had entered the dealer's inventory. But Shaya said the object was from the West Bank town of El Qum, which is under Palestinian authority control. Another artifact believed to have been looted from the same town a red carnelian sun fish amulet that dates to circa 600 BCE remains missing, according to the DA's office. Mr. Steinhardt has yet to locate the item,
but if it is found, it will be repatriated to the Palestinians, the office said. American authorities returned 28 objects to Israel last year, not including three that were seized in place at the Israeli Museum of Jerusalem. Seven others meant to be returned to Israel have yet to be found. Several of the items returned to Israel are believed to have been looted from the West Bank. The Israel Antiquities Authority declined to comment on the artifact's repatriation to the Palestinian. Heritage Minister Eliyahu, a religious ultra-nationalist in Netanyahu's government, now in charge of the country's Antiquities Authority, denies the existence of a Palestinian people. Since taking office, he has accused the Palestinian Authority of committing, quote, national terrorism and, quote, erasing heritage at an archaeological site in a Palestinian-controlled area near the West Bank city of Nablus. It remains unclear what impact, if any, a review by the ministry's legal counsel could have. It appears unlikely Israel could confiscate the artifact from the Palestinians, but a legal opinion against the move could potentially complicate further repatriations. Earlier this week, Mr. Eliyahu said he would be giving the Israeli Antiquities Authority full control over archaeological sites, cultural heritage, and theft prevention throughout the West Bank, a move that critics say would, in effect, apply Israeli law over occupied territory in breach of international law. Currently, archaeological excavations and antiquities in the West Bank are managed by the Civil Administration's Archaeology Staff Officer, which is part of the Defense Ministry. Israel has not formally annexed the West Bank, and the territory is treated as occupied and is governed under military law. Mr. Yassin said that for the time being, the repatriated artifact will remain at the ministry where it will be studied by one of its archaeologists. Then, he said, it will be displayed at one of the West Bank's museums. It is not the only one, Mr. Yassin said. It is the beginning. This piece is published at MiddleEastMonitor.com. Israel has decided to reinforce the border guards in occupied Jerusalem by deploying three army reserve companies in order to speed up the demolition of Palestinian homes, Kudznet News has reported. According to Israeli public broadcaster KAN, the decision in this regard is expected to be approved in the coming days. The context is a request made by far-right National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir to Police Chief Yaakov Shabtai to accelerate the demolitions. Initially, Shabtai refused and said that the task needs 300 extra police officers due to the deteriorating security situation in the occupied city. Haaretz reported that the two men screamed at each other. Ben Gavir is said to have taken the matter to the cabinet, but Shabtai admits the refusal of other security officials, refused to accept his request. However, following the extreme right-winger's persistence, the police chief finally Agreed. And this piece is published by Human Rights Watch. Israeli authorities' actions to seal the family homes in the occupied West Bank of two Palestinians suspected of attacks against Israelis amount to collective punishment, a war crime, Human Rights Watch said today. This punitive measure, which Israeli authorities have said they will follow, 
by demolishing the homes comes amid a spike in violence that has caused the lives of 35 Palestinians and six Israelis since January 1, 2023. The violence has included Israeli army raids that unlawfully attack Palestinian cities and refugee camps, Palestinian attacks on Israelis, and attacks on Palestinians and their property by Israeli settlers who rarely face punishment for these crimes. Deliberate attacks on civilians are reprehensible crimes, said Omar Shakir, Israel and Palestinian director at Human Rights Watch. But just as no grievance can justify the intentional targeting of civilians in Nev Yaakov, such attacks cannot justify Israeli authorities intentionally punishing the families of Palestinian suspects by demolishing their homes and throwing them out on the street. One of the alleged Palestinian assailants, Kairi Kairi, Kairi Alkam, opened fire in the Israeli settlement of Nev Yaakov in occupied East Jerusalem on January 27, killing seven civilians, including a child and a Ukrainian national, and wounding three other people before he was fatally shot by Israeli security forces. The attack came a day after Israeli forces killed 10 Palestinians, including two children and a 61-year-old woman, injuring at least 20 during a raid in the Janine refugee camp. In January, Israeli forces killed 35 Palestinians, including eight children, according to the Palestinian Authority's health ministry. The January 26 raid in Janine refugee camp was the single incident that month with the most deaths. Israeli authorities said their forces entered Janine to apprehend members of armed Palestinian groups who they alleged had carried out attacks on Israelis. Witnesses reported an exchange of gunfire, killing both apparent combatants and civilians. The Palestine Red Crescent Society said Israeli forces blocked medics from entering the Janine camp to treat the injured. The raid follows more than 10 months of intensified Israeli army raids in the West Bank after several deadly attacks by Palestinians inside Israel in March 2022. Israeli forces killed 151 Palestinians in the West Bank, including 35 children during 2022, according to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, more than in any other year since the UN began systematically recording fatalities in 2005. Israeli forces routinely use excessive or unnecessary lethal force against Palestinian civilians and are rarely held accountable for it. On January 28, a 13-year-old Palestinian boy shot and gravely wounded two Israelis, a civilian and an off-duty soldier in the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Silwan. The boy was wounded by an armed individual and hospitalized. No Palestinian armed group claimed responsibility for either the Nev Yaakov or Silwan attacks. Israeli police said they detained 42 people in connection with the Nev Yaakov attack, many of them relatives and acquaintances of Alkam. Most were released the next day, but some remain in detention, a lawyer representing Alkam's family told Human Rights Watch on January 31. The Israeli Security Cabinet also authorized sealing Alkam's family home, which the authorities carried out immediately. A lawyer for the Palestinian boy who allegedly carried out the Silwan attack told Human Rights Watch that Israeli authorities have detained the boy's mother, father, and brother since the attack. The cabinet also agreed to seal the home of the boy's family. 
Israeli forces have taken control of their house, according to the Israeli human rights group Ha-Moked. Israeli authorities have also taken a range of other measures in response to the Nev Yaakov attack. They have stepped up the punishment of Palestinian property owners for, quote, illegal construction in East Jerusalem, which has already led to the demolitions of properties, including homes of Palestinians, for whom building permits are nearly impossible to obtain. Israeli authorities have also said they plan to strengthen West Bank settlements, which violate international law, and have put forward a law to revoke citizenship or permanent residency for anyone who commits, quote, an act of terrorism, which passed its first reading in the Israeli Knesset on January 31. Israeli human rights groups have documented an upsurge of settler violence in the West Bank since the Nev Yaakov attack. Between 2005 and 2021, Israeli police closed 92% of investigations against settlers who attacked Palestinians without an indictment, according to the Israeli human rights group Yesh Din. International humanitarian law, including the Hague Regulations of 1907 and the Fourth Geneva Convention, prohibits collective punishment, including deliberately harming the relatives of those accused of committing crimes in all circumstances. Courts around the world have treated collective punishment as a war crime. However, Israel's Supreme Court has consistently rejected the claim that the Israeli government's practice of punitive home demolitions in occupied Palestinian territory amounts to collective punishment. Various types of collective punishment, such as punitive home demolitions and sweeping movement restrictions against entire areas or communities based on the actions of a few people, are among the policies that Israeli authorities have relied on to systematically oppress Palestinians, Human Rights Watch said. Human Rights Watch has found that Israeli authorities' systematic oppression, coupled with the inhumane acts they have committed against Palestinians as part of a policy to maintain the domination by Jewish Israelis over Palestinians, amount to the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. These are the fruits of colonialism and occupation and oppression and genocide. The, these happen to be happening in Israel against the Palestinians, but it is the same, same mechanisms and same programs that happen all over the world, currently and historically the same things that happened in the United States against the Native American people. Same things that happened in Canada and in Central and South America against the indigenous populations uh, all over the world. This is just one of the latest and one of the most active currently ongoing settler colonialist programs and genocidal policies to remove people from their land. Despite that, both historically and currently, there are people who struggle and fight and attempt to thrive amidst these deliberate oppressive actions. And we're going to wrap up with one of these stories. This piece is written by Fatima Abdul Karim and is published at 972mag.com.
On a slightly elevated hilltop in the center of the occupied West Bank, situated between Nablus and Ramallah, lies a suburban haven of feminism, communism, and grassroots participatory democracy. The village of Farqa, which aspires to become completely self-reliant by the end of the decade, was recognized a few years ago as the first eco-village in Palestine. Five of the village's council's nine seats are currently held by people under the age of 38, while similarly youthful autonomous committees work across different fields to improve residents' lives. Farka is home to a close-knit community of around 1,800 residents. Even those who have left, including expats and young families that move to bigger cities, maintain strong ties to their hometown through donating to community projects and returning regularly to visit, especially for the annual Farqa International Youth Volunteer Festival, which welcomes participants from across Palestine and around the world. We don't want to do things in the style of the Palestinian Authority, said Mustafa Hamad, the 31-year-old mayor of Farqa, which falls under the PA's Salfit Governorate. The village's drive for self-sufficiency is rooted in residents' distrust of the PA's exploitative neoliberal economic policies from which they seek to become independent. To that end, Farca produces 256 kilowatts of electric power from solar energy, saving 35% on electricity bills, and gets nearly 35% of its water needs from a local spring. Meanwhile, residents grow their own agricultural produce and carry out local infrastructural projects with their own hands. In addition, instead of accepting the monthly salaries provided by the PA's local governance ministry, members of the village council deposit them in a fund for projects in the community. The council also waives fees that it deems unnecessary for residents to pay, such as those for land registration or for obtaining fee quittance papers. We try to lead by example, and we did what we truly believed in for our people, said Hamad, explaining the commitment of local residents to their village. This is how we support the steadfastness of a people facing the risk of ethnic cleansing and erasure by a brutal occupying power. Looking out from Farqa over thousands of dunams of olive groves to the north, with the mountains of Nablus in the background, it is no wonder residents are opposed to constructing large new access roads into the village. Instead, farmers and landowners decided unanimously to take a few meters from several lots to build small agricultural roads for donkeys and vehicles to enter and leave in order to simplify the harvest. Since being designated an eco-village, Farca has also begun developing its own organic agriculture and agroforestry site which includes a combination of traditional stone terracing and water retention and irrigation systems, and even a biogas digester for preparing food. The farm is open for experimentation and learning for visitors from Palestine and around the world. The village mostly consists of middle-class workers and public sector employees and no big tycoons, but we depend on our personal efforts in almost everything, Hamad explained. We manage to build our own experimental eco-farm. We handle our school's periodic maintenance ourselves, and we constructed our own social club building from scratch. 
Of the village's 330 households, 234 have their own gardens. More than half of these were developed during the COVID-19 lockdown, a period of nearly 18 months in which young people in the village stepped up and took on new levels of responsibility. During the pandemic, Hamad already an established local activist and then deputy mayor undertook with 17 of his peers to meet the needs of the families in the village. Throughout the lockdowns between March 2020 and August 2021, the support committee ran errands for older people in the community in order to reduce their exposure to the virus. The volunteers paid people's electricity and water bills, purchased medicine and groceries, and raised funds from within the community and supportive external organizations to provide for those most in need, as determined by a survey they created. These activities likely contributed to the fact that only four village residents died of COVID-19 out of 115 infections. These young volunteers' resounding successes in the October 2021 village elections was evidence of the impact they had on their fellow villagers during the lockdowns. The new council also introduced an expanded model of governance that has brought even more young people into positions of responsibility. There are nine village council members, but the village is basically run by 130 active members of the council committees, Hamad explained. The education committee, for example, comprises the parents' council of the local school, former principals and educators, and current teachers. There is also a legal committee made up of lawyers and expert practitioners, as well as former council members who have knowledge of PA laws and regulations. All nine committees carry out their meetings independently. The committees are decentralized and their decisions are compulsory for the council to adopt because the trust is mutual, said Hamad. That trust, he explained, was forged during the COVID-19 period when young people took charge and showed the villagers that they are capable of taking on more responsibility. Hamad's 62-year-old mother, Amne Rizkala, emerged from her kitchen with a scruffy apron wrapped around her waist. Hamad had bragged that the village has a progressive feminist perspective towards women's participation, and Rizkala echoed this sentiment. None of our girls in Farka stopped their education, she said in a confident tone, as she set out a tray of teacups and saucers. Even the ones who don't do well find vocational training. Rizkala explained that she and her peers viewed education as a weapon for young women, given that they are not exposed to as many employment opportunities as young men. Farka is more advanced in many ways compared to the nearby villages because our girls are well-educated, she said. When they start families, many of them already have careers that push forward their families and their community. Embodying this spirit was a group of young high school girls who had gathered in the street. One described the village as a very encouraging environment in which to receive an education. Quote, I aspire to study agricultural engineering because I believe I can merge my mother's farming methods with new scientific ways, said another. The girls had also joined Farca's annual International Volunteering Festival for the first time this past summer. The event takes inspiration from the volunteering festivals head, held in Nazareth in the 1970s and 80s at the initiative of the city's communist mayor, Tafik Ziad, after his landslide election victory in 1975. 
Palestinian and international participants would take part in cleaning, planting, and infrastructure rehabilitation projects for a few days each summer, helping to deal with the shortage of resources from which the city was suffering at the time, before joining political, cultural, and educational events in the evenings. The Farqa International Volunteering Festival, which recently celebrated its 27th year, similarly brings together young left-wing activists from all over Palestine and the world for around 10 days each summer, anchoring the Communist Party's influence in the village through collaboration with international leftist parties that participate every year by the dozen. The most recent event hosted 60 international volunteers, mostly from Europe, alongside 150 Palestinians who were mostly Farqa residents. My personal history, the history of the village as a whole, and the history of the Communist Party's presence in it since the 1950s are intertwined, explained Hamad, stressing that the progressive thought and principles of the Communist movement have shaped the collective outlook of most of the villagers. Our program is entirely planned and overseen by a group of about 10 of Farqa's young men and women, he explained, stressing that the work is entirely voluntary and requires about two months of preparation. Funds are raised locally and logistics such as food are taken care of by our own families. Building on Farqa's strong consolidated leftist principles over the decades, Hamad and his peers are trying to further the prospects of the village without abandoning its rural character. The focus now, he said, is to implement projects such as building a new school, creating an independent water supply, and expanding Farqa's access to solar power. The dreams are large, but we have an eight-year plan to become a completely self-reliant village here in the heart of Palestine, despite everything, he said. For many outside observers, this is the scene of what a real progressive democracy looks like in the Middle East. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, if you want to check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral, just go to youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can also follow on Twitter at YCBneutral. You can also listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com.